Welcome to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to be a community of believers proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through worship, discipleship, and service. Our prayer is that you are transformed by the word of God in the following message. And we trust you are using this podcast as a supplement to your participation in a gospel church near you. Let's now hear what God has for us. Well, good morning and... uh... Indeed, a happy Lord's Day to all of you. There are seasons of life, and there are even historical eras that get us anxious about what's next because the people that filled those seasons of life or those historical eras are gone. This past week, a family friend of ours lost her dad to an aggressive cancer, much too soon, within a month of finding out. And uh, and, and, uh, so this week they have a funeral for him. You wonder, what are we going to do without dad around? Maybe we think of, what are we going to do with the next president? Some wish for a new president. Some are cynical that any president could do anything. But sometimes... There are those leaders that leave a gaping hole in their absence. Or maybe it is your favorite um, team that loses its superstar due to free agency, retirement, or whatever it may be. Or maybe it's a larger-than-life professor that you are hoping to get that kind of anchored the department in which you study or in which you teach, and they leave, and you wonder, is it ever going to be the same? And so we bring that question to every season of life, every epoch or historical era of what's it going to be like without them? This is a question that I think is posed in the book of 2 Kings as we look at perhaps one of the most famous stories um, today. If you have a Bible, please turn to the book of 2 Kings chapter 2. Second Kings chapter 2. We continue in our series. This is now the fourth really part of going through this book. We hope to finish uh, sometime in the summer with some breaks in between. This is God's word, and this word is for you. I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety, and then we'll dive in. 2 Kings chapter 2. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here. For the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could get over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elijah, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. 
But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him, and they said to him, Behold now, there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please, let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. But they sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Beloved, even this too is the word of the Lord. These books of Kings, as Pastor Eric reminded us last week, are written as a diagnosis of the past. You're sitting in the proverbial slammer wondering how you got here, and here's the message for you. This is how you got in captivity. But this diagnosis also serves as a deterrent for the future. Don't repeat history. See, each generation of Israel needed to not repeat history, if they could help it. So the point in this particular passage, in the grand scheme of the scroll of kings, is not to highlight the spectacular events that were just read, but it's to highlight the fact that God could not be silenced. So I think what this passage teaches us is that God speaks in our desperation through his appointed prophet. God speaks in our desperation through his appointed prophet. Israel, when they received this message, this story, this whole history of their nation, it was a desperate time. And they needed to know why and how to avoid it. And at this juncture, you're wondering, it's dark and it seems to be getting darker. I mean, who do we listen to? And now, God's man seems to be going away. So I think there's a question that we can ask, piggybacking off of this text, is how do we know that God still speaks and that his prophet is legit? Well, glad you asked. I'm glad the people who originally received this were wondering the same thing, perhaps, because I think our text provides three proofs that God's appointed prophet is sufficient in desperately dark times. 
Proof one is an undeniable confirmation that we see in verses 1 through 18. The second proof we see um, in verses 19 to 22 in the reversal of a curse. And the third proof is an unbearable curse. So proof one. How do you know that God is still speaking? Well, he undeniably confirms it. So the focus of this section isn't Elijah's spectacular disappearance. Now, it starts that way, verse 1. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, so there it is. He like puts it down right there. This is what's going to happen. And then he mentions the actual happening of it a few verses later. This actually, something similar happened way long time ago in Israel's history where one of its beloved people didn't die. It was the Enoch. And you can find in, in Genesis chapter 5 that Enoch was no more, for God took him. That's what the Bible says. That's the only other uh, instance of somebody not dying, but just disappearing. That was Enoch. So you kind of are, are, are wondering, is this what's going on here? But this imminent departure of Elijah was really grieving the younger prophet. This is what the first eight verses of the chapter kind of lean into. All right? Elisha knows something's up. And Elijah says, you know what? I got to go on this one myself. And with a little bit of chutzpah, Elisha says, um, no, as long as the Lord lives and you're alive, I'm with you. All right? And he keeps this this tack going a few times. Elijah's really stubborn. You see that in verse 2, 4, and 6. He says, I'm not going. I'm not leaving you. So Elisha is stubborn, and he's very loyal. It kind of reminds me of my dog. Uh, well, I won't get too much into my dog, but my dog is extremely anxious and is always needing to know where I'm at or where somebody is at in our house. She is very stubborn and very loyal. And when you leave the house, she barks in protest that you're leaving. So I kind of like, I'm feeling that Elisha has got that tendency, kind of like what we observe in a loyal pet. But one of the interesting things that I think that, that this frames this passage is the geographic progression. So they start off in Gilgal, but what you really want to notice is that Elijah says, I'm going to go to Bethel. And then in verse 4, he says, and now I'm going to go to Jericho. And then in verse 6, he says, I'm going to go to the Jordan. So don't, don't just glaze your eyes over and be like, oh, yeah, those Old Testament places. This is significant for this passage right here. So do notice that. Bethel, Jericho, and the Jordan River are key. And twice, at each of these, these first two locations, a group of the sons of the prophets. Okay, there was a prophetic guild, if you will, schools that, that were kind of peppered throughout the landscape of Israel that were, um, were schools of prophets. And, they, and the people who went to these schools and learned were called the sons of the prophets. And in these first two locations, the sons of the prophets come out to Elisha. They probably were familiar with him in some way and kind of nudged him and says, hey, you know, boss man, he's going to be leaving you here soon. It's like, yeah, don't rub it in, guys. Just be quiet. Shut up, will you? But, but it's interesting, the phrase that they use here, because it's going to matter at the end of this, this chapter. They said, the Lord will take away your master from over you. In other words, Elisha's head is going to be taken away from him. Keep that in mind. So Elisha then makes a bold request that only Yahweh could grant. And we see this in verses 9 through 14. And when they cross over, Elisha, I can just imagine this, right? Elisha just looks over and says, what do you want me to do for you? And immediately, Elisha says, let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. In other words, what Elisha is asking for here, he's in a sense asking can I be your son? This is in keeping with Deuteronomy chapter 21, where we get a little bit of download in how family relationships and posterity and inheritances work. 
in an Israelite family, the firstborn son would get the major share of the inheritance. He would get two-thirds of mom and pop's stuff, and the rest of the brothers would get a third of it. And so that's, that's the kind of the, the contextual and relational stew from which Elisha is operating. We don't know that Elijah had children. We don't know if either of them were married. But Elisha is invoking the law's inheritance principles and saying, I know there's a lot of prophets here, but you threw your cloak on me way back in 1 Kings 19, 19 through 21. And I'm wondering, can, can I have the firstborn share of your prophetic inheritance? Except what he's asking for is not something material. What he's asking for is a double portion of your spirit as he wants a double portion of his mentor's special relationship with God. And Elijah, being wise, says, you know, I, I don't know. That's not mine to give. But here's a marker that'll tell you that you may have it or not. Now, we don't know why Elijah didn't die. The text doesn't give us um, an, ex- an explanation. It's not saying that, you know, Elijah was really, really special, and therefore, you know, God, had, God just whisked him away in this uh, tornado-like uh, thing. But we do know a couple of things from this miraculous exit. By taking Elijah in a whirlwind, God was once again assaulting Baal's territory. You know why? Why do I say that? Baal's territory. Because Baal, the ancient god of the time, he was actually known, one of his nicknames was Rider on the Clouds. And it was Elijah that had done some significant damage back in the previous book. Remember the Mount Carmel incident where Elijah defeated the 450 prophets of Baal? There, God won with fire. And now God was once again saying, I win. There, Baal is not the God of the clouds. Baal is not in charge of the, clou- the clouds. I am. I mean, you, there are passage after passage of scripture that talks about God's ways being in the clouds. Psalm 148 as an example. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. That's the idea. It's a stormy wind fulfilling his word. Once again, God was assaulting the territory of the measly idol Baal. The other thing we gather from this is noticing Elisha's tender but passionate address, recognizes where the true power of the kingdom really is. What he says there in verse, I think it's verse 12, and as this is happening, he's seeing his boss go up in this whirlwind. He cries, my father, my father, to say something twice like that. As we learned a couple weeks ago in the Mary-Martha incident with Jesus. To say it twice is something of an intensified, passionate plea. It's tender but passionate. And then he says, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Now, is he actually referring to this, this fiery chariot and these fiery horses uh, as the secret sauce to Israel? No, no. By calling Elisha that, by saying that on the heels of saying, my father, my father, Elisha is recognizing that the true power of the kingdom is in God's spirit-empowered man. You get this exact same phrase. You can just mark it in your Bible to the side and look at it later in chapter 13, verse 14. When Elisha is on his deathbed, the Bible says that he's got a sickness that's leading to death. And Joash, the king, comes into into his room and says this exact same thing when Elisha is dying. My father, my father, the chariots of God. Ray Dillard 
says that in the warfare of ancient Israel, to have the prophet was to have the army of God. So you'll see in the next chapter, actually, and you can reflect on previous chapters in the, in the stories of, of 1 Kings, that when kings went to do something in Israel, they often consulted with the prophets to have the prophet's ear and to have the prophet's advice and his beat, if you will, on God's direction was priceless. It was as if you had God's very army, as if the prophet was just riding alongside you in the chariot on the way to war. Grief-stricken and alone, Elisha takes up the cloak that was Elijah's. And notice what he does. He begins to retrace Elijah's steps at the place and in the way that Elijah had just done it. Verse, the middle of verse 12. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in pieces. That is typical symbol of grief. This wasn't like, yes, I'm the boss now. No, this is like, oh no, what am I getting into? The guy I leaned on is gone. This was a truly, this was a moment of true grief for Elisha. And he expresses it in that visual way. So he takes Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him as he went up in the whirlwind into heaven. And he comes back to the bank of the Jordan River. And what does he do? He, 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 he's about to, he's rolling this thing up. And he asks, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? So he comes to the river with that question. Would Yahweh be with him as he was with his prophetic father? Rolling up the cloak, hitting the Jordan. Watch what happens. The Jordan splits open. Answer to the question, yes. The God of your father, Elijah, is with you. Elijah may be gone, but God isn't. So Elisha moves on, not knowing that there was a crowd that had been observing from afar. In verses 15 to 18, Elisha is recognized by the other prophets. And he's also exasperated by them, too, in this somewhat comical incident. The younger prophets knew that there were two prophets, and now there was one. Surely God took this guy somewhere else. So they spread out for a manhunt. And Elijah and Elisha says, you know, you guys don't do that. They asked him permission. Can we do that? No, no, really. Almost like guilt tripping the guy to the point where he's just like ashamed, embarrassed, and exasperated. And he's like, all right, you guys just go. This is a very human thing, okay? We, we do this as human beings, where we get pushed, in a sense, to an edge where we just give up and give in. And, and so they went. For three days, they went looking for Elijah. Was he in a desert? Was he on a mountain somewhere in a wilderness? And, and so I, I love how this uh, ends here. He said, they, as for three days they saw him, did not find him, verse 18, and they came back to him, that's Elisha, while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? It's like saying, told you so. Elisha, though recognized by these prophets and these prophetic schools, remember, he's alone now. And it's like as if you get the sense that this is like a this is like a flashback from the past in Israel's history. Remember when when Joshua was leading the nation of Israel into the promised land. And the book of Joshua says, "Moses, my servant is dead." Which is why one of my favorite scholar pastors on the book of Kings, Gary Miller says, if Elijah was the new Moses, remember those two guys were Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? If Elijah was the new Moses, 
Elisha is the new Joshua. Joshua led the children of Israel through what river? Not the Nile, not the Red Sea, but the Jordan. The Jordan parted for Joshua. And here it's parting for Elisha. It's clear that Elisha is God's new man, is God's new appointed prophet. Which tells us something, friends. Let's bring it home to 2023, where we live. That God isn't limited to any one person to do his work. This is why Charles Wesley has been quoted many, many times over the last 200 plus years when he says that God buries his workmen but carries on his work. God buried Moses. Sure, Elijah didn't get buried, but he got taken away. But with him being taken away like that, did God's work cease? No. Elijah's work was done, but God's wasn't. Which is why Pastor Dillard again says that the Holy Spirit isn't the province of a special few. Friends, beloved church, get this. We are not alone in bearing witness to Christ. We can take this on the, on the words of the psalmist when, when they say, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. The confirmation is undeniable. When it seems like trustworthy leaders are harder to come by in this day and age, and not just come by, let alone trust them, God always has someone to lead his remnant. He always has someone to speak truth and hope in desperate times. Our day and age, I mean, some of us may live a full life to 80, but by the very fact that we're all sitting here, well, Mary Ann, she had a birthday, 91 years old, a couple weeks ago, way to go, Mary Ann. All we know is the life we're living in now. And so sometimes it feels really desperate. But if you look at the history of the church, you read the Bible a little bit, you get the sense that, you know, great leaders come and go, they die. But God is still working. In fact, God is still growing his kingdom without those beloved leaders. We are not alone in the work of bearing witness to Christ. So don't put your trust exclusively in one human leader. Don't hear in that what I'm saying that don't be cynical of leadership. God gives leaders. Good leadership is a blessing, is worth trusting, is worth following. But trust in the name of the Lord, your God. Now, you have this undeniable confirmation. Now, there are two polar opposites incidents that follow this confirmation, proving that Elisha is God's man for the foreseeable future. So this leads us to the second proof in verses 19 to 22, where Elisha undoes a scourge. Look at verse 19. Now the men of the city, which city? Where where was Elisha at? He was in a city called Jericho. So note the geographic progression. They started in Bethel, went to Jericho, the Jordan River, Jordan River, and now where's, where are they at now? Jericho. After the vain manhunt, the men of Jericho City make a request to the prophet. See, this town, Jericho, is experiencing what we could call a public health crisis. They come and say, hey, look at this city. Dude, this is prime area for our tourism industry. People love living here. It's a great place to vacation. This is a great place. Look at it. It's just perfect. We have a problem. Our water supply is bad. And it's, it's interesting how they, they talk about it. My Lord, as my Lord sees, we have a good place here. The water is bad and the land is unfruitful. Look at verse 21 before we go into it. And he went to the spring of the water and threw salt in it. Thus says the Lord, I've healed this water from now on, neither death nor miscarriage 
shall come from it. The word miscarriage there in verse 21 is the exact same word for unfruitful. It's barren. And because the water's bad, that means two things. It's a threat. It's a threat to human existence. And it's a threat to livestock existence. So they've got a real problem here. Because a woman could drink this water, be carrying a baby, potentially miscarry, literally. But what this kind of water does is it poisons, in a sense, the whole economy. It weighs them down. It doesn't make people confident that they could go to this well-situated city and have a good time and buy a second home there or, or invest in that city. No. You don't go to a place where your fundamental need is under a curse. Now, what's up with this? What's up with this? Why was this like this? There's a little history that needs to be said here. Remember Joshua, the guy who parted the, the Jordan River? This is probably four or 500 years before. Joshua, in Joshua chapter six, let out a curse against Jericho where he, he said, cursed is anyone who's, who tries to even remotely rebuild this city. Then in 1 Kings 16, somebody tries to do it. And so you have this Jericho city now somewhat rebuilt, but Jericho for hundreds of years has been living under a curse. And this curse is felt in dirty water, non-potable water. Public health crisis, unfruitful, a miscarriage of the most, of the most important people of the most important part of a town, its people and its livestock. And so Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. Typical prophet. Seems like a strange thing to do. So they get like a flask and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then they went to the spring of the water and threw salt in it. Remember, uh, I mean, it probably goes without saying, we don't, they didn't have faucets. If you've been to Africa or in rural parts of Africa, you know that people go to a well or to a place to get water. So this is, this is what you did. This is what you were accustomed to doing. And so he goes over and pours from this new flask salt into the spring. And then Elisha says this, thus says the Lord, not a throwaway phrase, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage, unfruitfulness, barrenness, shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Elisha heals the town's water supply with a visible sign, salt, and a spoken word. This is a throwback, again, a hark back to Moses when he's leading the children of Israel without much water supply themselves, and they come to a place, finally, a place where there's water, and they take a scoop of water, and it's bitter. You can't drink this stuff. Those were the waters of Marah in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 to 26. And what does Moses do? Moses heals the water. Moses changes the situation for them. And he says, this has been done because the Lord is our healer. Yahweh Rapha. Same word Rapha is right here in 2 Kings. God is the one who heals. Though Elisha was the agent of this miracle, God is the one who gets the credit for it. You see that in verse 21. Thus says the Lord. Elisha says, I can only do this because God said so. This proves, friends, that God isn't limited in how he gets his work done. He's not limited by who, and he's not limited by what. Here he uses salt. In chapter 5, we're going to see this beautiful story of God using an Israelite slave girl in the Syrian army to help heal Naaman, we'll get to that, I think, after Easter. Well, before Easter. But one thing that is always true about God 
from this passage is that God graciously reverses what is cursed. God isn't just the kind of God that just doles out a curse and that's it. There's, I mean, in some cases, yes, but in this case, he reverses it. He is gracious. That is grace. It is a people who didn't deserve grace, who didn't deserve that, now getting grace, now getting a chance of a dignified life, of a healthy life. And the point here is not to say that, you know, God is our healer and he heals every disease and he heals, you know, he provides wells for all the thirsty people of the world and food for every hungry person. That's not necessarily the point. The point is that God is the healer. But I want to ask a question that'll connect us more to what happened in this, in this town of Jericho that day. What is it that every human is cursed with that, without God's grace, we'd be utterly and eternally damned? How are we cursed? Unbelief. Yet again, the prophet Jeremiah uses the same phrase about healing when he says, return to me, O faithless ones. I will heal your faithlessness. There it is. Behold, we come to you, the Lord our God. God touched the water, but the curse that is over all of us, over all humanity, is the curse of unbelief. And God, the gracious God, says, I can heal you from your unbelief. And you have to come to him. God graciously reverses what is cursed. So the final episode is the polar opposite of God's grace, but it shows God's justice. So we have the third proof in verses 23 to 25, where we see unbearable curses or an unbearable curse. Yes, pun intended. These, can we call them these bad boys of Bethel? aren't just ignorant, bored, whimsical. I mean, I could picture myself in this crew of kids, you know, whatever age they were, um, just being out, having a good time, doing whatever boys do um, when they're bored and ignorant and whimsical. But remember Bethel, okay? Remember, it started in Bethel. Elijah and Elisha started in Bethel. And now it's it's basically gone from Bethel down this way and back. Now they're back. Now they're in Bethel again. What was significant about Bethel? In the northern kingdom of Israel, Bethel was one of two places, I believe it was the southern part, and Dan was the other one, where there were idols that were fixed that everyone in the northern kingdom could go worship. They wouldn't have to go to Jerusalem. So Bethel was a place of institutionalized, progressive idolatry. They would not be friendly to the prophets of Yahweh. And so, Elisha's going there. It says, some small boys. Now, let's reckon with that phrase. That phrase, technically, captures an age that is between 12 and up to 30 years old. Now, if I just wanted to buffer the Bible because maybe I'm embarrassed or struggling with this, I'd say, well, they're probably like 20-some-year-olds. But quite likely, they're probably on the younger spectrum here. These young cats aren't just poking fun at people as they go by, like, you know, bored schoolboys. I believe that these Youngsters, I believe they were trained to be contemptuous towards God's truth. I think they knew what was up. They knew who the prophet was, Elijah. They knew that. And you know what was you know what's significant about Elijah is Elijah was a hairy guy. He was a hairy guy. And so they say to him, Go up. They say it twice. Isn't that ironic how 
You know, Elisha said to Elijah, my father, my father, they say, go up, baldy, go up. This epithet, if you will, go up is a deliberate and targeted insult at God's new prophet. What they're saying in this, go up, baldy, go up, baldy, is they are poking fun at Elisha's recent loss. By saying baldy, was Elijah, was Elisha bald? Actually, we don't know. It very well could have been. Schools of prophets, though they had certain ways of, of, um, of dressing and certain ways of cutting their hair. So it's likely, it's likely Elisha wasn't bald. But you know what? There's a play on words going on. Remember earlier in the chapter when the, the sons of the prophets says, you know, you're going to lose Elijah from over you? That's the idea here. They are poking fun that Elijah has been cut off. His father head, prophetic head, has been cut off from them. Now, going up, are they saying, wait, you're in Bethel. Why don't you go up and worship one of those cows there? But probably not. They're poking fun at Elisha, basically saying, you won't measure up to the hairy prophet before you at all. Go up. It's a way of saying, don't let the door hit you on the way out. So this wasn't just like, ooh, there's a bald guy. And what happens? Elisha turns around and we saw them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. We're not talking about F-bombs and four-letter profanities and obscenities. He's using curses in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. Now, that's an interesting phrase, she-bears, female bears. Book of Proverbs has a couple things on that, but we don't have time to digress there. But if you want to know what's behind these curses, it wasn't that... You know, it wasn't that, you know, he, uh, Elisha, we don't think, you know, he had something bad for his breakfast. You know, his stomach was bothering him and he was just on the irritable side um, where he was just trying to be grouchy like his predecessor was. Uh, he was like, you know, have to tiptoe around him. I don't think that's what's happening here. He just spoke a curse in the name of the Lord and it was actually biblical. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 21 to 22 says this, if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, that sounds like the profile of people who lived in Bethel, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children. By the way, that word bereave in Leviticus is the same word for fruitless and miscarriage. God's word is so awesome. Bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads will be, shall be deserted. In other words, friends, contempt of God's covenant lawyers, the prophets, will bring down his covenant bears. Now, this troubling episode might cause you to question God's morality. I get it. But it is metaphorically instructive. I'm not saying it's a metaphor that it didn't happen. It happened. There's no reason to think that it didn't happen. But instead of focusing on the morality of this incident, <laughs> really, maybe we all, when we read something as troubling like this in the Bible, maybe we should all ask ourselves why this kind of stuff doesn't actually happen more often. Have you ever pushed against God? Have you ever thought a contemptuous thing about God, about one of God's image bearers? of one of God's prophets, of one of God's leaders, of God's truth. And we wonder why we're, all, we're even here today. Does this not perhaps even speak to the very graciousness and the mercy of God that this doesn't happen more often? It's like the proverbial atheist, you've heard this, who stands in front of his students in the era when they used to use chalk in classrooms. And he holds a piece of chalk in front of his students and says, if God exists, if God really exists, he will prevent this piece of chalk from falling and breaking. 
And what does he do? He lets go of the chalk, down hits his foot, and breaks on the ground. And he says, see, God must not exist. Well, there is another answer for that. God is very merciful. That he doesn't, that he doesn't take those tactics, that foolishness, and wipe every person out who talks and thinks and acts that way. So I have to ask us, all of us, how you, I have to say this, how you receive God's prophet, in other words, how you receive God's word, because that's what the book of Kings is really big on, the word of God. How you receive God's prophet, his word, determines your entire destiny. So if you're sitting in exile, wondering how in the world we got here, He's saying, this is how you got here, and this is how you avoid it. Pay attention to God's prophet. Don't, don't rebuff him. Don't make fun of him. Don't belittle the truths he says. Now, you may be exploring Christianity. You may be here and are on the fence, or maybe you're just hostile against the gospel and Christianity. You may love and like, like the grace part and the love part of Christianity, but I ask you, are you actually repulsed by the justice part of Christianity? You can't have a God of only grace without having seen his justice. You must come to the God of grace, of justice. Because you know that without him, you could do nothing, you could be nothing, you are nothing. I am nothing without his grace. Now, I started off... I started off this sermon by saying there are three proofs that God speaks in our desperation through his appointed prophet. And surely anyone reading this story in the old covenant era would have seen the proof and, uh, that God provided. Indeed, he provided a prophetic voice, even when it felt like it was the last days of Israel. You'd be reading this thinking, it's a matter of time before the, our nation is a ticking time bomb and it's gone. But you say, okay, God is keeping his people there. But friends, we have the ultimate confirmation, not just from the Old Testament, but also in the New Testament. God always has a voice crying out in the wilderness to the people who dwell in darkness and desperation. It wasn't just those people in the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John. It is us today who dwell in darkness and in desperation. So what does God do after all these lines of, this line of prophet comes and goes? There's 400 years of darkness. Then Jesus comes on the scene. Let's fast forward a bit and let's get the beat on what God says. He says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Beloved, Jesus Christ is God's undeniable confirmation that he has spoken once and for all. How? Well, the B-I-B-L-E, for the Bible tells me so. Well, the B-I-B-L-E tells us that this Jesus is the final prophet because the final prophet became a scourge, became the scourge of society, and he was scourged, and he took on curses. It is Jesus who in his baptism, get this, in the Jordan River, centuries later after this story, he didn't split the river like his prophetic predecessors did, but what happens is that the heavens parted and split for him. And the voice of approbation, the voice of approval of his father's pleasure comes down and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And it wasn't just the words of the father splitting the heavens, but it was the Holy Spirit of God coming down in the form of a dove, resting on Jesus, the same spirit that had filled Elijah and Elisha. It is this Jesus who takes on the wind and the waves, and shows that he too is the ruler of the sea. And like his prophetic predecessors, 
Jesus was mocked at the cross and told, if you are the one, come down. It is our Lord Jesus who reversed the curse of death by rising bodily from the dead. And my Lord Jesus, 40 days later, ascended on a cloud back to heaven, Acts 1-7. And then 10 days later, he sent his holy wind, the spirit that was upon him. He sends that same spirit that filled Elijah and Elisha that to fall on those first followers in Jerusalem. All the power was his to give. And he did as the Holy Spirit grew that first church in Jerusalem. And like the power that legitimated Elisha as he retraced Elijah's footsteps, the Holy Spirit empowered witnesses into uncharted geographies where Christ had not yet been named, which is why he says, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you have power from me. And what will you do? You will be my witnesses here first in Jerusalem. And it's going to bump out a little bit into Judea. Then it's going to go to the outcast into Samaria. And eventually, we're going to blow this thing out to the uttermost parts of the world. Geography matters. That's not all. Revelation 1.7 says, he will come back for his beloved with the clouds. Mm. That's my Lord. That's my God who keeps providing voices in times of desperation God speaks in desperate times through his appointed prophet. He spoke then. He's speaking now through Jesus. He's given us his son and his word. And I ask you, what more proof do you need? Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father. If it were not for your grace, Lord, we would be dead. Dead physically, miscarried, barren, unproductive, without Christ and definitely without hope in this world. We thank you for the grace of this passage, these miracles that don't point to the kind of powers that we want, but the kind of power that you are and possess that you give and mediate through your Holy Spirit. Lord, take your word, bind it to our souls and our attentions this morning, this afternoon. Continue to transform us by your powerful word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Addison Street Community Church Podcast. We hope you were encouraged by God's word. And for more info for joining us for a worship service, For taking your next steps with us, please visit ASCCChicago.org.